bourgeois prison system and gender by comrades Simcha and Danny S. The United States is full of hypocrites. Settlers proclaim a love for freedom and democracy, but support the unjust dictatorship of the white supremacist bourgeoisie. U.S. liberals, in particular, embody this contradiction, endorsing progressive values, while materially unifying with right conservatives to uphold U.S. empire. One particular element of liberals' progressive branding is their supposed anti-racism. Drive through any liberal neighborhood in any U.S. city, and you will encounter a number of Black Lives Matter signs, as well as signs proclaiming love is love or believe science. Does this same liberal endorse the full abolition of prisons and policing? Probably not. Their support for black life is idealistic and heavily conditional, and certainly does not extend to those deemed criminal by the carceral state. The Prison Industrial Complex, PIC, wages open war on black populations, separating families, destroying communities, and assuring cheap labor for the PIC capitalists. The U.S. prison system serves multiple intersecting purposes for the capitalist state, particularly with regard to radicalized labor. The U.S. prison system serves multiple intersecting purposes for the capitalist state, particularly with regard to racialized labor and gender policing. While the racial dimensions of the U.S. prison system are well documented, its gender dimensions are a bit more obscure. Because the common criminal narrative is a gendered one, in which prisons exist to protect us from violent men, it is easy to forget that our society also relies on the stolen labor of imprisoned women and non-men. In fact, more women are incarcerated by the California state penitentiary system than anywhere else in the world. The ongoing crisis of incarceration is a byproduct of three major features of U.S. capitalism. Settler colonialism, patriarchy, and racial capitalism. Together, these forces function to forcibly extract cheap labor or free labor from those proletarians who have, through a variety of processes, already been labeled other. One of the oldest forms of contemporary oppression, predating even capitalism, is the oppression of non-men through the system of patriarchy, which holds white cis men as oppressors and leaves shards of power for white ruling class women to clutch and wield like swords. Why, in an empire that prides itself on its bountiful wealth, must the prison system extract value from its prisoners? In what way are these prisoners doubly or triply exploited for their gender nation? In what ways are these prisoners doubly or triply exploited for their gender, nation, or sexual orientation? Or perhaps more importantly, how does the capitalist ruling class benefit from the double and triple exploitation of already marginalized groups in prison, like black trans women or indigenous two-spirit people? To address these questions, we must investigate the historical context of the U.S. carceral system and its relationship to chattel slavery, the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and the contemporary phenomenon of the supermax prison. The foundation of the U.S. state itself is genocide. The forcible removal of indigenous peoples from their land was the first step of what Marx called primitive accumulation. The second step was chattel slavery, with which the newly formed U.S. bourgeoisie planters and industrialists, violently kick-started capitalism. The settlers who formed the early U.S. ruling class were not of nobility, nor were they born wealthy like the governors and ship captains sailing from the English kingdom. They were, at most, petite bourgeois, merchants or artisans, or in some instances, prisoners condemned to serve their sentences in the colonies. It was this system of transportation that laid the groundwork for racial chattel slavery. This cruel phenomenon allowed European settlers to extract immeasurable amounts of wealth 
through the forced labor system, creating a whole new American class, the planter. See Rise Number 1, The Planter Empire. The unconscionable system of slavery was doomed to end through its own internal contradictions, its antagonism with northern wage labor, and through the effort of the racialized slave caste itself. For southern planters, this meant a massive shift in the way they accumulated wealth, but the U.S. capitalist monster is nothing if not creative. They found a way to maintain chattel slavery in content, if not in form, and to continue extracting massive surplus values from the black population. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was the mechanism. The U.S. government never intended to break away from the slave system. It simply reorganized it into a form more palatable to the Christian conscience. This took the form of criminality via the 13th Amendment. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The Civil War promise of 40 acres and a mule was a sick farce, and what followed has been an unending nightmare of oppression and exploitation. Through the decades, the ruling class has adapted their strategies to match changing material conditions, always finding new ways to ensure continued exploitation of, in particular, the black masses. First, they imposed sharecropping, then Jim Crow laws, and ultimately the contemporary supermax prison system. This system is what we refer to in modern terms as the prison industrial complex. It is a highly sophisticated network of legal and social practices which ensures the state's control over a racialized and gendered prison population. PIC, despite its pretense to the dubious principles of retribution and rehabilitation, actually operates to normalize and entrench the exploitation of already marginalized groups. Differences in sentencing between the ruling class offenders and criminalized groups serve as a clear example of the prison system's class function. For example, actress Felicity Huffman was sentenced to just two weeks in federal prison despite being charged with a felony. Her crime was a hush payment of $15,000 to ensure her child entry into a ruling class university, despite not qualifying on their own merit. The state knew it had to punish her to maintain a facade of justice, but the punishment was incredibly lenient, especially when compared to the egregious sentences regularly handed out to working class, nationally oppressed women for minor crimes. Compare Huffman to Crystal Mason, a working class black woman in Texas who was sentenced to five years in prison for the crime of voting. The state of Texas deemed her ballot illegal because of a law with origins in the Jim Crow era. As a felon, she was prohibited from voting. She didn't realize that, but the judge sentenced her anyway. This is not some fluke or some rare oddity. This is the standard in the U.S. injustice system. But why? Why does the ruling class expend a great effort to maintain an exploitative incarceration system when there are unemployed and unhoused people across the U.S. desperate for work? And what precise functions does this system serve for the ruling class? How does it uphold patriarchy and white supremacy? According to Marx, one precondition of capitalist social order is a constantly shifting reserve army of labor. The following passage from Capital illustrates its function. But if a necessary laboring population is a necessary product of accumulation or of the development of wealth on a capitalist basis, this surplus population becomes, conversely, the lever of capitalistic accumulation, nay, a condition of existence of the capitalist mode of production. It forms a disposable industrial reserve army that belongs to capital quite as absolutely as if the latter had bred it at its own cost. 
independently of the limits of the actual increase of population, it creates for the changing needs of the self-expansion of capital, a mass of human material always ready for exploitation. For capitalism to continue to drain the blood from the working class, it must maintain a workforce with which threatened by joblessness, as well as a large pool of unemployed workers. This way, the ruling class can challenge any rise in class consciousness with the threat of unemployment. In the U.S., the Reserve Army is a racialized phenomenon. A settler colonialism allocates the best opportunities for white workers and relegates black labor to precarity and low wages. The ruling class uses the PIC to artificially inflate the ranks of the criminal reserve, condemning a racialized group of workers to leisure. The ruling class uses the PIC to artificially inflate the ranks of the criminal reserve, condemning a racialized group of workers to legally sanctioned slave labor. And an individual with any kind of criminal charge in the U.S. is stripped of a variety of rights. For felons, this can mean a loss of the right to vote. But even a misdemeanor can make finding a job extremely difficult. The U.S. unemployment rate pre-COVID was only 3.5%, but for individuals with a criminal record, it was 27%. That means that over a quarter of everyone in the U.S. with a criminal record cannot find work. This perpetuates a cycle of desperation and incarceration. Ultimately, this forces the formerly incarcerated back into an arrangement that is most productive for the capitalist class, that is, back into the prison system itself. From the perspective of the ruling class, the relationship between the reserve army of labor and the prison industrial complex is mutually beneficial. By maintaining a scarce number of jobs, the ruling class pushes desperate workers to compete with one another. By criminalizing these workers, molding them into an other, bourgeois society deems their exploitation acceptable. After all, who cares if violent criminals are harmed during the process of incarceration? But not all criminals are violent, and even if they were, the conditions of the U.S. prison labor camps go beyond what many U.S. citizens would condone if they fully understood what was happening behind the walls and bars of an industrial prison. This is not simply an abstract social category. Criminalization entails the creation of a juridical category, the criminal, which is materially subject to expropriation. Felons can be pushed around by the state have their property stripped from them, and treated poorly by banks and other bourgeois institutions. Criminalization and racialization operate in tandem. The very bourgeois concept of criminal itself is racialized. For women and non-men, the PIC operates according to the same principles. It genders and criminalizes poverty and desperation in a way that reinforces an already unequal society. It is a mobile limb used to prop up the flailing foundation of capitalism, mobilized at capital's will. We are living through the golden age of the industrial prison system, and the racialization of feminism itself may have played a significant role in the development of this new social order. In the 1970s, second wave feminism shook the U.S. with a campaign for workplace equality, but the racial character of this feminism was just as white as the women's voting movement nearly 100 years earlier. As women became pilots, doctors, and computer engineers, the labor which historically had been extracted from them to maintain the patriarchal household, and thereby reproduce the basic unit of capitalism, the nuclear family, was simply going undone. The capitalist class was faced with an internal crisis arising from the contradiction between its need to extract unwaged domestic labor from women and its desire to exploit women's labor in the workplace.
They responded with ready-to-eat meals produced in factories so working mothers could continue to take care of the home even as they worked full-time jobs. The double burden of gendered labor. The mass production of clothing, lowering its cost and quality and creating the conditions for today's disposable clothing market, also facilitated this workplace transition. This meant that food and clothing production had to come from somewhere, but the 60s and 70s were not an easy time for capitalists on the world market. Decolonial revolutions exploded from centuries-old contradictions as revolutionaries fought to eliminate poverty and exploitation in their own nations. With neoliberal foreign policy still in its infancy and the neocolonialism at an early stage, the global market demanded sources of raw labor, and that source was ultimately to be culled from inside the empire itself in the form of prisons forced labor system. There are prisons in the U.S. today which pr produce tilapia for fried fish sandwiches, which produce cheap clothing for Walmart superstores, which produce food on actual prison farms for the consumption of the masses. All of this is a byproduct of the desperation capital faced during the revolutionary period of the 60s and 70s. Between 1972 and 2009, the U.S. prison population increased by 700%. Prison system, long established to control black labor, expanded dramatically to accommodate the empire's incessant hunger for labor. At the same time, white women entered the workforce in massive numbers. Facing these dual labor fluctuations, the prison system adapted and expanded, solidifying its role as a guaranteed source of imperial super profit. In addition, the expanded carceral system allowed ruling class women to maintain their powerful positions in the workforce by offloading some of the burden of domestic labor onto prison laborers via the above-mentioned production of commodities. All the while, the capitalist class was able to expand industry, valorize profit, and justify its activities on an ideological level. The prison system also functions to maintain gender hierarchies, which necessitate heteronormativity. It does this through gender policing, actual enforcement of gender binaries through the gendered prison system, overall reification of the gender binary as it suits the patriarchal capital class. If class structure and capitalism require the maintenance of gender hierarchy, then any cause to question the gender binary and the classification of people into strictly defined roles will be met with hostile resistance by the ruling class. The ruling class benefits from gender hierarchy and gendered labor. Gendered labor roles and the nuclear family grease the wheels of capitalist accumulation, historically ensuring the capitalist class one definite source of productive labor, the male role, and one definite source of reproductive labor, the female role. Despite the proliferation of feminism and queerness in the 21st century, our institutions and mode of production itself remain staunchly conservative and shaped by the traditional man-woman-child structure. The ruling class will continue to work to ensure that we perceive cisgender heterosexuality as normal and everything else as aberrant. The ruling class will insist on binary classification, as they always have, via crude analysis of a person's physical features. They will enforce adherence to that designation under threat of withholding access to medical resources, public facilities, and employment. In doing so, they apply continued pressure to conform to gender roles assigned by society. The closer one is able to position themselves to normal, to cisgender, heterosexual white men, the more likely they are to receive some material benefit through proximity and to reduce their exposure to direct expropriation. This can cause members of oppressed genders, sexualities, or nations to reject solidarity with their class. This is a built-in feature of the gendered class structure that continually sucks people 
into its de-radicalizing orbit. Trans people, in particular, are viewed by the ruling class as a strong threat to the gendered family dynamics that undergird the capitalist mode of production. The ruling class responds to this threat with propaganda and criminalization. Through criminalization, the social status of trans people is reduced in the eyes of the law and its adherents. Trans people are rendered unworthy of concern and deserving of abuse, subjugation, violence, and death at the hands of the state, whether directly or indirectly. Emmy Bevensey, a data scientist and social justice organizer, writes that trans populations are disproportionately poor because of employment discrimination, family rejection, and difficulty accessing school, medical care, and social services. These factors increase our rate of participation in criminalized work to survive, which, in combination with police profiling, produces high levels of criminalization. Because of their exclusion from shelter, school, and employment via discrimination, a disproportionate number of trans women of color are pushed towards extra-legal methods of generating income, often in the form of sex work. Feminist theorist Lori Safin describes how the interaction between the police officers and transgender prostitutes offer additional evidence of police harassment. Transgender sex workers who had been assaulted said that the police officers they sought on the street often refused to take a report of the incidents. Sex workers were also told that violence against prostitutes was not important enough to file a report. Sex workers, and trans sex workers in particular, have no recourse to institutional protection when the social authority of those charged with enforcing the law is wielded against them. In addition to scorn, ridicule, and harassment, police officers may intimidate trans sex workers, resulting in many trans people not reporting incidents of violence. Moreover, many trans people of color decide not to turn to other social services out of fear of harassment. In this manner, various social institutions intersect to further marginalize transgender individuals from services greatly needed. The PIC, under the social auspices of being an institution responsible for protecting society from those deemed criminals, is particularly effective at enforcing the gender binary. This complex, designed to strike hardest at our most vulnerable, offers no sanctuary or relief for queer and trans children. Wesley Ware writes, once locked up, Queer and trans youth experience the same horrors that their adult counterparts in the system do, but magnified by a system designed to control, regulate, and pathologize their very existence. Prison is an exceptionally effective atmosphere for reconditioning people who exist outside of the strict requirements of the gender binary. For example, in Louisiana's youth prisons, queer and trans youth have been subjected to sexual identity confusion counseling accused of using gender identity issues to distract from their rehabilitation and disciplined for expressing any gender non-conforming behaviors or actions. By establishing deviance from expected gender performance as a condition that requires rehabilitation, gender deviance becomes, for all intents and purposes, a crime worthy of additional punishment. The prison attempts to repair this perceived dysfunction. Further, Unlike the adult criminal justice system where individuals either write out their time or work towards good time or parole, youth's privileges in prison and eventual release dates are often determined by their successful completion of the rehabilitative programming, including relationships with peers and staff. Thus, youth who are seen as deviant or mentally ill, or who otherwise do not conform to the rules set forth by the prison, often spend longer amounts of time incarcerated and are denied their opportunity for early release. In this way, the ruling class is able to take their cake and eat it too, appearing, 
progressive by endorsing rehabilitation, while continuing to reinforce violent gender hierarchies that allow the capitalist state to function. The extreme cruelty carried out by the PIC against trans women is often represented as a protective measure. Solitary confinement is often used as punishment for inmates due to the adverse physical and mental effects, including hallucinations, panic attacks, paranoia, reduced impulse control, attention, memory, and thinking deficit, and loss in awareness. Trans women who are placed in men's prisons may be confined to solitary upon their arrival or as a consequence of reporting sexual assault. This is represented by prison authorities as a means of protecting them, often for months at a time. Combined with the encouragement of idealized cis-heterosexual hypermasculinity among male inmates, this strategy is not unlike the decriminalization of rape in parts of Europe in the 15th century, which was, as Silvia Federici describes in Caliban and the Devil, intended to redirect class antagonism into an antagonism against proletarian women. Bevensey describes a similar strategy being exercised in modern prisons. When trans women are incarcerated in men's prisons, atrocities against them become commonplace. An example, if they are not placed in solitary confinement or isolation, as is the norm, in order to protect them, trans women are sometimes pimped by corrections officers to their assigned husbands in order to quell rebellions. By relegating trans women to a social status of feminine gendered object, the PIC can accomplish its multifaceted agenda of punishing gender nonconformity through torture, reinforcing patriarchal gender hierarchy, and inciting internal hostility among imprisoned populations. There is no other principled choice. Every communist must endorse, with their full might, the immediate abolition of the prison industrial complex and the policing system. We must tear down each prison brick by brick, and the society that built them must come down with them. We must relish in the dusty racket that follows and embrace true freedom. Not the false freedom of the bourgeoisie, a freedom to exploit for one's own individual gain, but freedom from oppression, from exploitation, and from abuse. What is a woman's prison other than a manifestation of patriarchal control? What is a prison if not the incubator for capitalist exploitation, holding down the most oppressed and extracting more and more against their will? The prison system is a tool of the capitalist class, and one of their most effective at that. Warehousing unproductive populations, providing a guaranteed source of cheap and racialized labor, and enforcing gender normalcy all at once. To strike at these roots is to strike at the social basis of the bourgeois state itself. Only a strong abolition movement, paired with a campaign of revolutionary justice, can achieve this end. <laughs>